TED Audio Collective. The good news and the bad news about climate change. The bad news is that climate change is here and it's causing destruction and fires and floods and famine and etc. Great harm all over the world. That's the good news, that climate change is here. It's causing floods and famine and disaster all over the world. And so people are starting to take it intelligently, seriously. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Don Norman talks about how to change the world in a time of crisis. People are really good at responding to crises and disasters. They're not good at preventing it in the first place. I've been reading and loving Architectural Digest for as long as I can remember. The magazine and the website are the first places I go for design inspiration. So when I found out that the editors of Architectural Digest just launched the AD Pro Directory, the ultimate resource for matching designers with prospective clients, I knew I had to tell you all about it. Now, for the first time ever, AD's extensive community of homeowners and design enthusiasts can easily find and hire their favorite design professionals. The directory is a list of AD-approved architects, interior designers, and outdoor specialists that anyone in need of design services can access for free by searching by profession and location. If you're a design expert who is looking to grow your business and want a chance to be featured in AD, apply now. If you're a client seeking best-in-class design services, you can browse AD's extensive list of design experts. Want to be introduced to the best of the best? Explore the AD Pro Directory at architecturaldigest.com forward slash design matters. The modern world has been designed by people, and pretty much everything around us has been artificially fabricated. Our world is also in deep trouble. Catastrophic climate change and species extinction threaten civilization itself. These two truths are deeply connected. We, intentional or not, may be the designers of our own destruction. Yet if we fundamentally change our way of being on this planet, there just may be a way out of our predicament. These are just a few of Don Norman's many ideas in his new book, Design for a Better World, How to Create a Meaningful, Sustainable, and Humanity-Centered Future. Considered one of the pioneers of user experience design, Don Norman is the author of 21 books, including the global best-selling The Design of Everyday Things, It would take several minutes to introduce Don properly, but I'm hoping our interview today can serve as an introduction to some of his achievements and ideas. Don Norman, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. That was quite a powerful introduction. Oh, well, thank you. It's a powerful book. Don, I believe you were born in New York, but since your father worked for the U.S. government in the public health service, you moved every couple of years and have lived all over the country. Uh, were there any favorite locations growing up? It's hard to know because it was I moved every two years, including a, a period in El Salvador, except that one for me was only a few months because uh, my family was there for two years, but that's when I left to go to college. And when I went to college, MIT, for four years, that was the longest I'd ever been in one location. Was it hard for you to move from place to place while you were growing up? Well, but you know, this is kind of the story I tell in my book, is that the way we grow up and what we encounter, we just assume is normal. And it never occurs to us there's some other way of living. So yeah, that's the way I was. I never, I didn't question it. It just was. But one thing that that happened was I really, I don't have any friends from that period. And my wife still goes to, has friends who went to kindergarten with her. And me, I, I don't even remember any of them. It was, I first made people who I still, you know, know and talk to uh, when I went to college. 
Your father's job required that he transfer to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and you moved to Falmouth, Massachusetts, where you went to high school. And I read that you said that you learned nothing in high school. Is that true? I learned nothing from the Falmouth High School. I suspect I learned before that. Yeah, and I didn't even graduate. I, I left before graduation. But they said, well, no one from our school has ever gone to college. So if you get into a college, we'll give you your degree. <laughs> well, your father was transferred again. And as you mentioned, um, this time to work with the State Department in El Salvador. And from what I understand, this resulted in your never actually finishing high school, but you still ended up being able to go to college. How were you able to manage going to college without a high school diploma? I don't remember the details of how that worked. But you do have to apply to college uh, in your senior year before you've... Uh, ah, interesting. But it's interesting because I met another friend, at uh, a computer scientist, very well-known computer scientist. I was at his home at, in Rhode Island, and we sort of discussed, he said he came from a place nobody had ever heard of, and I so I asked where he was from, and he asked where I was from, and he said, well, it was from Massachusetts. Well, where in Massachusetts? Well, Cape Cod, but where in Cape Cod? Well, Woods Hole. He said, what? And it turns out he graduated from the same high school I did, and he was told that he was the first person ever to graduate and go to college. Maybe he got the diploma. <laughs> anyway, those are all asides. But I was a real nerd in those days, and I learned a lot by myself. I was a radio amateur from junior high school to high school, and I was building my own equipment while going to high school in Falmouth. And at MIT, I was a nerd, and I fit in just fine. Uh, so it's actually been a rather remarkable transformation from nerdhood to today. But part of that, though, is I can talk to engineers. I have no problem with bridging that gap because I can speak their language because I am an engineer. I have two degrees in engineering. I'm a member of the National Academy of Engineering. To me, design is actually taking what we know about technology, what we know about the way the world is configured, and human behavior. And it's the combination of that because we, we create things that are for people, but that obviously always use some kind of technology. It may just be writing, you know, paper and pencil, writing, printed, but it's technology. When you were at MIT, when you first went to MIT, you discovered both analog computers and digital computers. And you've said that it's difficult to imagine this today. But as freshmen, you and your friends had great trouble understanding the difference. When did you begin to feel like you had an instinct for computers and engineering? Uh, the reason we didn't understand the difference between digital and analog computers is because analog, we could understand because it was, well, differential equations, which was sort of a fundamental in engineering, and that it sort of mapped directly. But digital, well, we nobody taught digital in those days, so uh, we didn't know what was going on. But they both used the same word, computer, so we, oh, what's the difference? And analog computers are far more powerful in any event. And analog was neat because when you had an equation, you could turn the knob and see, oh, on the oscilloscope, on the displays, oh, I see the difference. That's what happens. Oh, you know, this is what happens. And you could immediately see and transform and modify the parameters just by turning knobs. Whereas with digital, when you finally got to it, no, you had to sit down and program laboriously, and then you had to submit it on to the computer, and then maybe the next day you'd get a big printout. And you tried to figure out what the printout meant. It just wasn't very useful in those days. Remember, the first computers? Well, when I programmed my first computer at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, it was a million-dollar computer in those days, and that was very expensive, and it was a, a giant brain, and it had 1,000 words of memory come a long way. What were you, given, given it was such a new field at the time, what were you envisioning you wanted to do professionally? I wanted to make an intelligent machine. And what happened was, because they didn't have computer science at University of Pennsylvania, turns out my friend from Woods Hole went to University of Pennsylvania, wanted to study computer science, and they said, wonderful, you will be the first student. So we followed in this funny trajectory. 
And so psychology, suddenly I was not interested in psychology, but they got a new department chair. He gave a talk in the engineering school, and it turns out he was a physicist. And his talk was very interesting to me. And I went up to him and I explained why I was interested, that maybe if I can't study, I can't build intelligent machines, I could study this machine, this intelligent machine, humans. And he said, you don't know anything at all about psychology. And I said, right. And he said, wonderful. And that's how I accepted. I read that you hated initially, you hated psychology. How come? Because I still hate the psychology that I hated then. Because as an engineer and as a scientist, you don't really have to memorize very much. There are fundamental principles. And if you learn the principles, you can always derive everything else. And in psychology, uh, no, someone did an experiment. So you have to remember what they did and how they did it, what they said they found and who they were. And then someone else did a different experiment. So you had to memorize all this stuff and it wasn't, there was no cohesion to it. I wanted cohesion. So I was, I applied what I understood about engineering uh, to psychology. And um, <laughs> there were times when I was, everybody thought I was brilliant. And no, I wasn't brilliant. There was some puzzle and they couldn't figure out what the answer was and how you understood this weird behavior. And I would take some elementary principle from my engineering studies and apply it and say, well, how about doing this? And they, oh, that's so brilliant. No, it wasn't brilliant. It's that this is a common phenomenon, by the way, when someone is in one field and they apply their knowledge, even the everyday knowledge of that field, to the new field, to the new field, it seems like, oh, brilliant. <laughs> and so I've sort of capitalized that through my life because I keep changing fields and able to bring what I know about this into that. So when I graduated, in those days, we got jobs differently than today. My advisor said, so where do you want to go, Don? And I said, oh, I don't know. And we talked about it and decided I should go either to MIT or to Harvard. So he sent me to, to investigate both schools and come back and say what I thought. At MIT, it was really neat and fun, but I said, that's what I've been doing a lot. And Harvard was completely different. And so I said, I think I should try Harvard. So I went to Harvard. And when I got a, my faculty position at Harvard, my mentor, George Miller, who was a very well-known psychologist who did understand what I was doing, introduced me to the faculty. And B.F. Skinner, the most famous psychologist in the 20th century, stood up and denounced me and my field and what I was trying to do. I didn't take it personally, because obviously he didn't know me, but I thought it was very amusing. But basically, he said, if you can't see something, you can't study it. And I kept wondering, how do you think physicists or chemists get along? I mean, gee. One of the things that I was so intrigued by was the fact that when he denounced you and your work, you didn't really care. Did his denouncement impact the way others saw you at Harvard at the time? Look, it turns out he really wasn't denouncing me. He was denouncing George Miller. Ah. So Miller and, and Jerry Bruner worked together. They started something called the Center for Cognitive Studies. And you can see where I was. When I, I was admitted to the Center for Cognitive Studies, I didn't know what the word cognitive meant. And uh, I hated American psychology. And I was just doing my thing. But when I was at Harvard, it's when I first learned real psychology. I looked, discovered William James. And William James was wonderful. Uh, I thought, yeah, this is why, why did it stop? And well, it stopped because the behaviorists took over. I'd also discovered British psychologists and the British were doing really neat stuff. And so I started to work following the British psychologists and starting and in William James Hall, actually, the name of the building, following William James. And that when my first book was called Memory and Attention, and it starts off saying, everybody knows what attention is. And that was a quote from William James. You once uh, said that you never like to work on anything that you understand. Therefore, most of the time you have no idea what you're doing or why or where it's going. Um, it's only over time that you're able to step back, put it into a coherent story, make sense of it and fully understand it. Um, was that the case with the writing of your latest book? And then when I'm all finished, I, I, uh, I write a book. And I teach a class with it. And then, okay, okay, done with that. Now on to the next thing I don't understand. Yes, that's how I work. Because I think that the mind is really a neural network. 
much more complex than the neural networks we're building today, but it's neural network is the closest we can come to building things kind of work that way. Very different than normal digital computers, by the way. It's a pattern recognition system. And I think of my head as I read a tremendous amount. I talk to many different people in many different areas, and it all piles up inside my head as a jumble. And, and I often can't even recreate it. So what, what was the great book I just read and finished yes, last night? Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember the title. But actually, my mind, my subconscious remembers. It has all of that stuff in it. It all gets mixed up, and what it does is it sort of tries to find coherent patterns. There was a uh, European philosopher, mathematician, can't remember his name, French, can't remember his name, but who said the same thing. He said that what happens is the mind, the subconscious, is puts all these things together until it finds what feels like a low-energy solution, speaking in physics terms, and it interrupts the conscious mind to say, hey, I found something. It often is brilliant, but it often is stupid because it can't do arithmetic, for example. So when you interrupt the mind, then you have to figure out, oh, is that a good idea or not? And most of them are not. But the ones that are good ideas are truly good ideas. And that's kind of how my mind works. So I don't know what I'm doing. And I have a feeling that most of my students never thought I knew what I was doing because I didn't. Until it, it all started to merge and make sense. And, um, and putting it together in a book is also very important because then you're sitting analytically trying to say, I have all this stuff that I've been writing. I write every morning for hours. And so I have all the stuff I've written. And does it make, how do I put it together? What's the coherent story I can put to it? And that's, that's the hard part. Writing is easy, but I can't write until I have a coherent story. What provoked you to write Design for a Better World right now? My books to this point, especially in design, have all been about how to make things easier to understand, easier to use, etc. And that's important, but it's not going to change the world. I'm at this point 87 years old. And I said, well, it's time I've stepped back and tried to do something that really will make a difference in the world. And these ideas were building in me as the world itself suddenly went into weird states. So we had the Black Lives Matter issue. We had all sorts of problems with uh, discrimination against gender and the women's movement. We had uh, the anti-colonialism movement building up. We had it's basically all sorts of prejudices and biases being exposed and being uh, talked about. And and then, of course, the climate change issues was finally becoming more and more public. And I remembered a critical sentence that I remembered was Victor Papanak, who wrote a book in 1971, designed for the real world, he called it. And the first sentence of the book said, there is no field more dangerous than design. Why? Because designers make all the crap that we buy and throw away, and it destroys the world when you mine, destroys the world when you manufacture, destroys the world when you throw it away. He didn't say the last part, but he he meant it because I've read all about his history, so he knew about that too. And that said, yeah, why are we doing that? And what can we do about it? Again, I, I went and talked to many different people. I, I especially looked at the Black Lives Matter and people concerned about equal rights for women. I would I agreed and understood what they were about, but I didn't think that I would be especially important in that area. And I wanted to do something where I could use the particular knowledge I had that would be effective. Then suddenly I get this note that I was awarded the Sir Misha Black Medal for Design Education. And they asked if I would fly to London to receive the award. And this was during COVID. So COVID was also the pandemic and, and, the, and our complete inability to respond as if we knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. The infectious disease doctors all knew it was coming, but, but nobody pays attention to that. That's been another statement that's an important one in the book, that people are really good at dealing with a calamity when it occurs. But they don't do any work to avoid the calamity in the first place. Because beforehand, it's not visible. You work on things that are visible. And so the limitations of the human mind is to a part 
exactly what is going on today. Anyway, when I was in London, the Design Museum in London, which I always visit whenever I'm in London, was having a new exhibit called The Waste Stage. And moreover, I had discovered the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is located on an island in the southern part of England. And they were partially responsible for the exhibit. And so I met with them for three days, and they're the ones who champion the circular economy, and they're all about sustainability. So I learned a lot from them in, in my preparation for meeting with them. And then during the exhibit, I went to that exhibit for three days. They invited me to the opening VIP installation, and I met the woman who was responsible for much of it. Um, and it turned out <laughs> we had met before. I didn't remember. She reminded me very forcefully, we had met before, Don. And um, that gave me an anchor for what I should talk about. That I began to realize how I can piece together my knowledge of human behavior and of some of the issues. And so I talked about meaningfulness, that scientists use stuff that doesn't make sense to the average person. Why don't we talk in language that people understand? Also, the economists have dominated. The economists don't have any notion, any understanding of people up to recently, when the behavioral economists finally took off. And so they measure everything, and they measure it in money. They want a common way of measuring things, so they use monetary units. And um, they try to simplify, so we use a gross domestic product, which is a single number that tries to state the power of a nation, and yet that number includes negative as well as positive things. Yet there's a group at Oxford that has said, no, 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 let's let's try to separate out the different parts that, that a country does that are good or bad for the ecology and the parts that a country does that are good or bad for society. And so we don't want to talk about whether a country is good or bad. We talk about your educational system is excellent. Your healthcare system is not. You're polluting the oceans. You're doing good this. You're doing bad that. That's more useful. You know, just last night I said, wait a minute, you know, the IQ is exactly that. We measure people's intelligence by something that we can measure, namely how well you perform on these silly tests. And we use one number to try to summarize a very complex set of things. I've always believed that the IQ test is really good to tell you how well you can take IQ tests. And it correlates very well with how well you can take tests at the university. But neither of those correlate that well with how well you do in life. Life is more complex than that. It's not passing exams. That's not what you do in life. All that became a part of my story. And when I was an engineer, I was told that if you can't measure it, it means you don't understand it. But I went back and read the origin of that statement. And it came from Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, who said, if you can't measure something, then it means you really don't understand it. That's what he said, except he started by saying with four words in the physical sciences, if you can't measure it. And that's because there's no history in the physical sciences. If I throw that in the air, I can predict its course and how long it takes to come back. And if I do it again, the same answer, do it again, the same answer. The fact that I've thrown it a few times doesn't change its behavior. Well, if I threw a person up in the air, <laughs> Believe me, the second time it would be very different, or an animal, or anything. And so live things are different. And you don't measure them the same way. And you can't. And it's not so consistent. You can't make simple behavioral rules like, like they wish they could do. That all is sort of the, the theme of my three parts of the book. Well, one is that the world is artificial. And the last part is all can we do about it. But the three substantive parts are making it more meaningful, please. Don't tell us about a 1.8 degree rise in temperature, starting with the rise of the, of, the of the Industrial Revolution of the 1700s to now, when the temperature changes more than that every day. What are you talking about? What are the scientists? They understand it's about heat, not about temperature. But to the average person, it makes no sense. What do you suggest that scientists and uh, anthropologists say instead? What it means. First of all, you could talk about what it means for the weather and climate, but scientists are too conservative to say that because the whole point about science, by the way, is that you disagree with any other with all other scientists. When someone publishes a finding, some scientists say, whoa, that's really exciting. But the majority of scientists are taught 
to say, well, I don't know, and to question it and to find holes in it and to try to repeat. And if they can't repeat, well, it either means they didn't do it right or the other person is wrong. But it's that kind of debate going back and forth that makes science so powerful. What the world didn't understand is during the pandemic is that scientists would often tell you, here's what we should do. And then a month later, they would say the opposite. And so, well, what are we talking about? People think science is a body of facts. No, science is a method for getting better and better information and better knowledge. So when scientists told us at the beginning of the pandemic what we should do, well, it's a new pandemic. We didn't really understand this particular virus, so they just gave us the very best information that existed at that time. And as they learn more, well, they change their minds. And scientists change their minds all the time, good scientists. I change my mind all the time. In fact, my standard statement is, and if someone's going to prove me wrong, I would prefer it to be me. <laughs> That's all about meaning. People don't understand how people work, how science works, and so they don't trust it anymore. You state that the planet is not in danger. It survived many mass extinctions and transformations, and it will survive this one, although it will be a changed planet. And going back to, you mentioned something about Victor Papanek earlier. In addition to the that first line of his book uh, being, there are professions more harmful than design, but only a very few of them, he also states that designers have become a dangerous breed. You suggest that design must now change from being unintentionally destructive to being intentionally constructive. Um, What are the first things that you would ask a designer to consider today to begin to make a tangible difference? Design is a funny field because it started off early in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution as a tool to make the cell better. So basically, like the Wedgwood factory for making China hired artists to print pretty patterns on the plates. And ever since, it's been a tool of industry to try to improve industry. And and designers were always thought as sort of part of the infrastructure. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't decide what we should make, but they made it prettier, look better, more attractive, and today's era, easier to use. As a result, designers, they're mostly they're trained in art schools. It's art and design taught together, or architecture and design. That's not true. We aren't artists. Artists are quite different. Artists are trying to do something to make a statement, to express their own own knowledge, their own desires, their own opinions. That isn't what design is. Design is building for other people. So we really have to understand people and what they need and how they work. If designers build something and choose this wonderful set of materials that makes it light and thin and good to, to look at and touch and feel and Yet it can't be taken apart afterwards. You can't repair it. So it's a short lifetime. Well, that's good for the company. Short lifetime, you got to buy a new one and a new one. In fact, deliberate obsolescence, planned obsolescence is, is a bad thing, but designers contribute. Well, if designers are in the service of their clients, how do designers work to change the client's point of view about things like planned or forced obsolescence? I mean, you see that planned or forced obsolescence in everything. You see it in technology, you see it in automobiles, you see it in fashion. How do we as designers begin to enforce certain changes that need to be made from the top? Very good. So how do we enforce things from that have to be made at the very top? Well, one way is to be at the very top. How come we don't have very chief design officers? In the largest companies. Well, we do. We are beginning to now. I mean, I can name five or ten off the top of my head that are designers at the in the in the C suite, so to speak. In the in large companies, yes, you can name five or ten. Well, off the top of my head, I'm sure that there are more. I know that there are more. There are surprisingly few. I think the number is more like in the hundreds, as opposed to the fact that how many thousands of firms do we have? And how many have chief marketing officers or chief finance officers or chief, et cetera. But why aren't designers there is the question. And the question is because they don't, they often champion design. I talk to designers and they say, what can we do to make the, our administration understand us better, our executives? And I say, what do you do? Well, we go and we show them the work we're doing and we show them the prizes we win and we show them the wonderful letters again. 
or we describe some of the problems that people are having. And I say, look, when I was an executive, somebody came to me with a bunch of problems. I didn't want to hear them. And it isn't that I didn't want to know about the problems. I wanted to know what the solutions were. Knowing the problems don't help me. But if you have a sensible way of solving them, yes, please come. Second thing is, but you have to understand how a company works. So you can't come and just show me pretty pictures. You have to tell me, so look, how much is that going to cost? Will that hurt our sales? Will it help our sales? I ask designers, don't you know that one of the principles of design is to understand your customer? Well, your customer is the boss of your boss, the higher ups. And so you've got to learn to speak their language. And you, you want to you show them the spreadsheets with increased profits, with increased margins, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, oh, how could we do that? We have this new idea. We wouldn't know how many people would adopt it. Well, isn't this what marketing does all the time? They push their ideas and they, they have those spreadsheets. So make friends with marketing or do what they do. Make the numbers up. That's what marketing does. But the executives are smart. They used to make up numbers too. And they know there's no, there's no other choice. But what they do is they say, so what are the assumptions you made? What, where did you get those numbers from? How did you start, et cetera, et cetera? So if you make a good argument, they'll say, oh, yeah, let's take this seriously. But you can't propose to switch to the circular economy and make or have a longer life cycle of our products without saying, well, that's going to hurt the monetary flow, the profits of the company, and we may go out of business. So you have to have a solution for that. And if you don't have a solution, well, maybe you have a beginning of a solution, and maybe you can convince them to begin that way while we experiment. But you can't do it all at once. You'll have to do it in small steps. But again, you have to act like a business person, not like a designer. And that means you have to learn the language of business. Oh, absolutely. The language of finance is critical for any anybody that's in design now. Yes. Um, otherwise, you know, people are talking about and complain about the fact that they might not have a seat at the table. I'm more concerned about what happens when they get a seat at the table and have nothing meaningful to contribute. I can tell you what happens. Uh, I, I've seen this happen. Some designers get promoted up to a seat at the table. And not only do they not work well, but they hate it themselves. And so, boom. I mean, I used to learn that because I've got one, a couple of board of directors. And uh, at first I said, wow, wonderful. I can help them devise new products and move in new directions. And I discovered that all the board of directors meetings were 90% of it was financial. My response to that was to learn finances and uh, to be able to address that. So is your recommendation that for designers to truly begin to address the issues that you're outlining in your book, that they learn the language of finance? Well, it's more than language of finance. They have to learn about people. They have to learn about society. They have to learn about market forces. But market forces is more than just finances. It's the market, the, the, the qualitative market forces that drive and result in the finances. But not everyone. Because, look, we still need the great skilled designers, we still need the people with the with the skills and understanding and, and the creativity to put it together. But every design group needs at least one person who is rising to the top and it's and can and can talk this language and represent what design needs to do. Because because design, look, design is this interface between, as I said earlier, this interface between the world, between technology and the way we work, do things, and human behavior. And that's critical. That's unique of all the fields. We optimize human behavior and human experience. Other fields optimize time or money and productivity. No, we optimize the experience. But we can't forget those other factors. They are important. So I feel designers are the best group to sort of help lead these very large projects that are going to be necessary because because that's what designers have to do. We don't have the skills to do. We don't have the skills. We have to bring together the skills. I go on and on about methods of doing this because most of the big projects that go on in the world fail. So we have to do them in a different way. You talk about how modern capitalism or what some, some people are calling late stage capitalism is one of the biggest causes of inequity of our time. And you write that Adam Smith's theory of capitalism should not be confused with the current practice of capitalism. How are they different? Well, when Adam Smith wrote, 
we didn't really have the same kind of stock markets and shareholder power that we have today. So the people who usually own shares in a company, yeah, they often didn't care what the company did. They just cared about profits. But at least they they did care enough about the company to actually take part and listen to what was going on. Today, that doesn't happen. And we have, of course, the disastrous statement by um, the University of Chicago Nobel laureate who said that a company does not own allegiance to its customers or employees or to the community in which it exists. Yeah, it's just to its shareholders. But to its shareholders. Yep. And, you know, there's been some revolt against that. So we have what's called a B company, a B Corp. B Corp, yeah. But it's not quite the same status as a, as a normal C Corp. And uh, I always talk about Patagonia as a good example of a company that is really cares about the environment and about the products, but about their customers and about them. And, and they are a B Corp. Yeah, but they're probably the only one. I mean, they're with the more recent announcement of the CEO um, essentially giving up all of the profits to greater causes is, I think, an example that a lot of other CEOs could follow, but won't. They are corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder as written by the laws of capitalism. And until that changes, the only risks that corporations are going to take are calculated ones that ultimately won't cause them or will cause them as little harm as possible. Yes. And so that's one of the things that must change. But notice these laws are fairly recent laws, mostly in the 20th century. Well, actually, I want to I want to ask you about that, though, because you write that three of the most important historical influences on today's world are modernity, the Industrial Revolution and economic theory. And all of those began in the in the mid 1700s and in combination created the governments and economic systems that we have today. Should we be concerned that these influences are over 300 years old and we're living with them in a day and age that no one could have foreseen at that time? I don't think we should be concerned. I mean, you're asking we should be concerned of the fact that it's been around for so long. No, I don't like to look backwards. I did lots of bad things in my history. Well, not not bad legally, but things that I regret. But I I learned from them, and I learned I learned to say those were I did the wrong thing, and I changed my behavior completely. And I feel the same is true of, of all the problems we have. Today, except we have to admit that it's better. there are better ways of doing things. And it's really hard because, well, the Republican Senate and House has now just voted that we should not allow financial advisors to include, to worry about the ecological impact of a company. It's only about money. And their job is simply to tell you where to invest your money so you might get the largest return, as opposed to where it might make, you know, be good for people. That just is crazy. And they say, this is the woke phenomenon. We want to kill the people who are woke and destroying the world. Well, I'm woke and I'm proud of it. By woke, it means that I changed my mind dramatically in the last, actually over time, but especially in the last four years. You asked me why I decided to write this book. It's because I was awakening. Mm. I was starting to learn about a lot of the things that I never paid attention to and realized how wrong they were and that they could be changed. Those laws can be changed because the laws were made by people. They can be unmade. One of the examples that you give in the book that was a little bit terrifying was implementing the seatbelt law. And while Design for a Better World presents a really eye-opening diagnosis of where we've gone wrong and a clear prescription for making things better, I think one of the biggest issues about change now is that those who benefited from the historical path we've been on see little reason to change. And that was why I mentioned the laws developed or the ways in which we live being developed 300 years ago. Um, And it's not necessarily because of self-interest, but it's because they can't imagine any other way of being. And one of the examples that you give in the book is how something as simple as implementing a seatbelt law took more than half a century to implement. And so I'm wondering, how do we change the way we act today in a way that is a bit more urgent? Well, here's how 
<laughs> as I said before, people are really good at responding to crises and disasters. They're not good at preventing it in the first place. So the good news and the bad news about climate change. The bad news is that climate change is here and it's causing destruction and fires and floods and famine and etc. Great harm all over the world. That's the good news, that climate change is here. It's causing floods and famine and disaster all over the world. And so people are starting to take it intelligently, seriously. And that's what it takes. It seems to take something that we are really good at reacting to things, but we are not good at foresight at reacting before something, because there's nothing there. We're good at reacting to things that we see and understand. And it's, you can't understand something that doesn't exist yet. So I think that's what was going to have to happen. But we have a lot of people who are going to be hurt. We see that. We see, look, the United Nations have been having annual meetings for 20 some odd years now about climate change. And they get all the nations. That's a, a problem. They have 119 nations that must all agree uh, upon any resolution that they pass, and that's almost impossible, so it gets watered down a lot. That's the first thing. The second thing is, <clears throat> so all the nations, they all agree to it, then they go back to their countries, and half of them just ignore it from then on. on. But even when Biden has one signed and he comes back to the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Congress says, no way. So it's politically difficult, and uh, it really is. And it's going to take a long time, but we have to keep trying because, because the problems are going to get worse. And, but the worse they become, the harder it will be to overcome them. But the, actually, the more the people realize that we must do something. And I don't, I hate, I wish there were a better solution than that. And there may be. And one of the reasons I'm hoping for the book, I, I give now lots of talks about the book to schools all around the world. Students often ask that question, what are the solutions? And I say, I don't know. I don't, that's a, they're asking me questions I can't answer. And I applaud them for it because it's the most important questions of all that I can't answer. And the very fact you're asking the question is a really good sign. And you, the students of the world today, you are where the answers will come from. I know that a lot of uh, young people, and I think people in general now, feel that technology has too much control over our lives. Um, and you've talked about how we have to change the entire fundamentals of technology to ensure that machines and technology are the servants of people, not the other way around. Um, do you have any thoughts about how that can be undertaken? Yes. The way that we misuse technology was actually taught and studied and created by, well, the psychological sciences, the social sciences. And we taught that these people teach in business schools, the applied psychologists and the applied behavioral scientists, where do they get jobs? Well, one of them is business schools. And we used to teach about lock-in, that, hey, Apple, you should make your own equipment and your own operating system and use your own plugs and everything so that once people buy into your system, they can't change. It's too difficult. You're, they're locked in forever. Now Facebook is saying, if you use any one of our systems, you automatically are connected to Facebook and vice versa. And uh, well, I, I like to use Angry Birds, if you can remember that game, yeah, as a good example, because it was brilliant engineering. Because it was a really simple game and very trivial and so on. But what they did was brilliant. You had this pile of blocks or so, and you had to shoot an animal into it, which would knock them down. And your goal, though, was to aim just right to knock the entire thing down. And in the end, you very seldom managed it, but it always looked like you came so close. So if you had simply failed, you'd quit and maybe come back another day. But you don't just fail. You, you Wow, I made it. And then, oh, no, this block is teetering, teetering, and then it stays. It doesn't drop. That's brilliant psychology. Why? Because it keeps you committed. You want to come back. You say, oh, I just let me try one more time and one more time. And two hours later, you discover you're still doing it. Now, is it evil psychology? Yes. But that's what we were teaching. I taught some of that stuff. Do you think we're doomed, Don? No, because I'm an optimist and the only way to live Continue living successfully is to be optimistic about it. And I think 
I see many people changing. I see more and more people joining in what we are talking about. Uh, I see, well, people like you who are well-versed in what I wrote. You took it, you obviously took it seriously. You're asking the, the absolute wonderful questions. And I see companies starting to change slowly. And yes, they will have to change their business model, but there are alternative business models. It probably will be a subscription service is going to be what we do. But we could live with that's how we used that's how the phones used to come we used to rent our phones we paid every month for for phone service and they guaranteed the phones would always work and they did and they fixed it if it didn't work and so on but that also destroyed innovation in the phone business but it shows that there are good aspects to this and the subscription model doesn't have to cost any more than what we pay already in buying new stuff it's just it'll be spread out over time but that's a way that you can try to reassure a company that says, well, if I, if I sell a refrigerator that lasts forever, then they'll just buy one. They'll never buy the second one. So you have to learn to get a different way of giving value to your customers. One of the things that you write about in Design for a Better World is the fact that you didn't want to discuss the way technology is being used to control our behavior to spy on us, in part to increase the dominance by companies upon us, to seduce us into spending more and more time in their spheres of influence, as well as the dominance by governments, police agencies, and political parties to get us to behave in certain ways. And that was a quote. And I'm wondering why you didn't want to discuss that. Oh, uh, very simple. Because I'm writing a book. It's already longer than I wanted it to be, 300 pages. And I decided that There are lots of major issues going on in the world, but I wanted to cover the ones where I thought I had a unique perspective that could offer something that might be new and valuable. And on the issues you just discussed, there are a whole bunch of people who are doing a really excellent job, and I didn't feel I could add to anything they were talking about. You talk about the fact that there are two types of knowledge that people use on a day-to-day basis. Knowledge of, referred to by psychologists as declarative knowledge, so remember to stop at a red light, and knowledge how, which is also known as procedural knowledge, skills to be a musician. I'm wondering if you can talk about how both those types of knowledge might contribute to making some of the necessary changes we need to make moving forward in our world. There's a a different... Um, division of knowledge as well, which is related, which is conscious versus subconscious. And sometimes psychologists call it automated, but automated invariably means subconscious. The um, declarative knowledge tends to be conscious and procedural knowledge tends to be subconscious. And in fact, you learn by, by having it all conscious. You either watch and you try to infer the steps you're supposed to do and so on, and you're pretty bad at it. And the way you get good is by practicing. And it's surprising, by the way, a lot of that practice can come in your sleep or can come just by thinking about it. You can get better by thinking about the skills and imagining yourself doing it. But it has to become completely automated. I asked a musician once about this, and he said that you have to learn to play the music so well it's automatic so the mind can be worrying not about the fingers and the notes, but about the melody and the the, the emphasis and the emotional component. And he said, I once was playing a concert and I lost my place. That's a disaster. So I had to listen to myself <laughs> playing until I recognized where I was. And then I felt comfortable again. But the whole point was he could keep going automatically. And that's procedural knowledge. Well, the problem is that it's easy to convince people that what we're doing is wrong and has to change. It's like telling somebody they need to go on a diet, and they need to stop eating something. And they will agree with you, and they will understand it, and they will even repeat it back to you, or they'll even come and volunteer it to you, but they can't stop. I once wrote a paper on will. turned out to be an important paper, to my surprise, with uh, Tim Shallis, who's a neuroscientist in England, in which we said that Will is is the conscious attempt to control your behavior. So when in the morning when you wake up and you don't want to get out of bed, you have to force yourself by will to get out of bed. Or if you're on a diet, you don't want to eat that tasty cake. 
you have to force yourself not to. So will is what forces you to do things you don't want to do or prevents you from doing things you do want to do. And so that led me to, to create this joke that if I'm at a dinner, a fancy dinner, and they serve all this food, and I've eaten a lot of food, and now they bring this luscious dessert, which I do not want to eat, and it's right in front of me, and I am not going to eat it, and I am not eating it. If somebody then walks up behind me and says, boo, <laughs> startles me, I'll start eating the dessert. Why is that? Because he destroyed my conscious mind, forcing my body not to eat the dessert. It's now distracted the mind from that in- inhibition. And so my body just goes wrong. So then how how do you make intrinsic changes that you know you should make and, and taking it on a bigger level from not eating a piece of cake to not buying into planned obsolescence or not doing things that are harmful to the climate? You have to do it in small steps, each of which demonstrates some positive factor. And so the more you do it, the more you'll get into the game. And if you do enough small steps, you're actually going to be committed to the whole. The other problem, there's a related problem, which is a reward structure in both universities and in business. The reward structure in universities is horrible because you're rewarded for being the best in the field and publishing in in more and more specialized journals of high quality. That means if you work with other people, you, you don't get rewarded so much. I mean, I went to a meeting of the electrical engineering department at UC San Diego, where they were trying to debate, if you do a paper with other people, how much credit do you get? Oh. Five people, you get, you get one-fifth the credit? That was stupid. Most good work is done by groups. And second, yes, we need specialists who are really good experts in their little narrow discipline, but we also need generalists who can put it all together. And generalists don't get hired or promoted because... They don't publish enough in many of the good journals. So we have to change that. And we have to change the promotion policy in industry, too, because it's based upon not what have you done that's good for the world, but what have you done that's good for our profits, our immediate profits. Right. This is where from the high up has to be able to say, no, we know we're undergoing a major change. We know we believe in the end is going to be better for us than what we're doing today. But we know we're going to go through a difficult period in the middle. And so we will not punish you for not meeting your profits and not meeting your targets in the beginning. That could be done just with a few senior committed people at the top. Uh, And they have to waive the the wrath of the shareholders as well. But there are ways of doing this. And there are companies starting to do this. And as, as you pointed out, more and more companies are starting to get CDOs. Uh, what their impact is is still unknown, but I know uh, the few CDOs of large companies that I know of have actually made changes in the company. Um, Don, this might seem random, and and you actually haven't addressed this at all in Design for a Better World, but I'd love your take on the newish buttonless elevators I'm seeing in hotels and office buildings, wherein you indicate what floor you want to go to before entering the elevator, and there are no buttons to press inside the elevator. They are called destination control elevators. And what do you think? Well, I'm a member of the National Academy of Engineering. This is going to be a longer story because I'm going to start earlier. Good. And I was at one of the meetings in Washington, and there was this person sitting alone at a table, and I was with my wife. And I said, Oh, that's David Kelly, the guy who founded IDEO, who founded the D School at Stanford and so on, who's a friend of mine. So I went up to him and asked, could we join him at his table? And we did. And while we're at the table, he says, you know, the elevators they have in this hotel are horrible. Uh, Yeah, I go in the elevator, there's no button. What are you supposed to do? And I say, well, you're supposed to tell it what floor you want beforehand, and it tells you which elevator to take. Well, what if I change my mind or if I push the wrong floor? Well, what do you do in a normal elevator? Um, If you've gone past the floor you really want to go to, you have to wait till it gets to the next stop and get off and then take one down. Well, but but I said, look, these are wonderful because they what they do is they're more efficient. They wait until they get people going in the same direction and the same as much as possible to the same floor so that it has to make much less stops. So it's much faster for anybody. And yes, it feels bad because you have to, first of all, remember to hit your button beforehand. 
And then you have to wait at this elevator while other people who came after you are already getting into their elevator. But they're going to a different place. And so it would slow you up to go into their elevator. And it's really wonderful. And you people have show, you show that not only do you use it faster, but you can build less elevators and handle the same number of people. So I would, just was in one. I was in San Francisco a couple of days ago and it had one of those elevators. And it was wonderful. But I did notice a few people get in and not know what to do. The problem is you're trying to change a behavior that we've come so used to that it seemed bizarre and wrong. And even someone as clever and intelligent as David Kelly couldn't get it at first. He got it after I explained it. He said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And But that's what's going to happen with a lot of the things we're talking about. That actually the new behavior is much going to be much better for everybody once we get there. But there's going to be a learning cycle. And things are harder during the learning cycle because you'll keep forgetting. It's so interesting to hear your perspective on this because I think that most lay people don't understand the motivation for making those changes to begin with. So they don't understand that you get somewhere faster or you don't understand that the people that are in the elevator with you are mostly going to around the same place you are so it's more efficient. I think most people go into these elevators thinking it's limiting where I can go. I don't have as much choice. I don't have as much control, seemingly. And it feels like things have been taken away as opposed to augmented to be better. And if only there were a way to be able to communicate why these things were done, it would make it a lot easier. I often tell my clients that are concerned about what the response is going to be to a logo change, which we know is always sort of over-exaggerated now, that the way in which to do it is to explain why you're doing it. If you just put it out there and expect that people will understand, they won't because no one is ever looking at a logo thinking, oh, look, they made changes. Woohoo! Let's find out why. You have to be able to prepare people for the change. That's all true. Um, I was just thinking about how what kind of communication would be so simple that people could read it quickly, and yet they'd understand it. And I think you could yeah. probably do that. And you're right, it really confounds people, and it has not taken off as rapidly as it ought to because of that reason, I think. The last thing I want to ask you about is actually something that you started the book with. You quote George Santayana in his book, The Life of Reason, who famously stated, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And you think he's wrong and that we do not repeat history. Talk about why and what we do instead. History doesn't repeat itself because its history is very complex. There's so many different variables and so on. It's just, it would be impossible to repeat history. But, and the but. Remember I talked about Lord Kelvin, who says if you can't measure it in the physical sciences, then you don't understand it. But the problem is you can't do that in the social sciences, in the behavioral sciences, because the behavior, whatever you do, impacts you for the, maybe the rest of your life. And the technical term for that is path dependent. The way we got to someplace makes a big difference. In the physical sciences, it doesn't matter how particles get to where they are. From there on, it's, uh, you can predict what's going to happen. Actually, this is easier in classical physical sciences than in quantum mechanics and so on. So our history really determines how we behave. It actually makes us think that the way we grew up and the way we interpret things, it never occurs to us there's any other alternative. We just take it for granted because that's how it's always been all of our lives. And that's, that is where history matters. Because if you don't understand that, then you may actually limit the number of possibilities that you feel you can take. I mean, I've lived in a company all my life. I've worked in these companies. And it's absolutely essential we keep increasing our profits year after year after year. The shareholders insist upon it. We can't change that. Well, you could change that. But if we you grow up believing that, that's what you were taught in school. That's how you watch other companies do it. That's how you are rewarded during your career. It's very hard to change. That's where the Santiana quote, the spirit is right, but it's, the details are wrong. 
Don Norman, thank you for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Don Norman's brand new book is titled Design for a Better World, How to Create Meaningful, Sustainable, and Humanity-Centered Future. You can read lots more about all of Don's extraordinary work on his website, jnd.org. And if you go there, you'll find out why it is named jnd.org. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Nolman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland. For millennia, we have debated the link between our mental, physical, and spiritual health. So where are we now? We're going to have major breakthroughs in the ability to integrate the whole mind. What does consenting look, feel and sound like for me and how do I recognize that in other people? I think of it as energy. Are we amplifying our energy? Are we diminishing our energy? Mind, Body, Spirit, a three-part series on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.